Well, hey, everybody, it is so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online from the comfort of your pontoon boat. And if that's you, you're probably wet right now, so maybe not a pontoon boat. But anyway, I'm thrilled to have you along for the ride. We're in the middle of a series called Who is God? that explores what God has revealed about himself and how he wants to relate to us through the authors of both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Um, And as many of you know, for the past five weeks, we've been exploring what God disclosed to the people of ancient Israel through what we today refer to as the Ten Commandments. And I'm telling you, it's been a lot of fun so far. If you've missed any of those talks, you can watch them again on the website. Um, And what we've discovered, just some incredible things, including, and this is kind of the baseline for the whole first section of this series, uh, the fact that the Ten Commandments were not given to ancient Israel as a way for them to build a relationship with God. Uh, They were given after the people of ancient Israel already had a relationship with God, which is pretty amazing if you stop and think about it. I mean, like most world religions are kind of revolve around this idea that there's a God somewhere out there who's given people a bunch of rules that he or she wants them to follow. Uh, And if the people do follow the rules, then he or she might do nice things for them, like answer their prayers or bless them or even give them an upgrade in the afterlife. Um, And if people don't follow the rules, then he or she might do some not so nice stuff for them. Uh, Things like ignore their prayer requests or curse them or maybe give them a downgrade in the afterlife. Uh, In other words, in order to create and maintain a relationship with a God, generally speaking, you need to first follow the rules. But here's the thing, that's not the sort of correlation between rules and relationship that's described by the authors of the Bible. They tell us, and this is good news, that with God, relationship always precedes rules. And that reversal of expectations has the power to change everything about the way we think about and experience God. Okay, so now if you've been with us so far in this series, you know that we've already discussed the first four of the Ten Commandments, um, and I made a slide by way of review, so behold its majesties. Not quite as good as Ryan's slide, but what can you do, right? Uh, First, we talked about how God told the children of Israel that he was to be their one and only God, the ultimate authority in their lives. And then we went on in week two to discuss how God uh, warned the children of Israel not to make any images of him. Because any image that they tried to make to represent him would necessarily reduce him and may even lead people to suspect that he's too small to really help them navigate the many challenges of this life. He isn't a God that you can make a statue of to carry in your pocket. He's the God who wants to carry you. So no images. Well, then in week three, we talked about how God desired that his children carry his name well in the world. The command reads this way, don't misuse God's name. And we talked about how what really was going on there is that God, again, wants his children to sort of represent him in the world in a way that honors him. And in fact, he wants to introduce himself to people who are not yet his people by leveraging the lives of the people who already are his people. So he says, don't misuse my name, carry my name and my reputation well as my people in the world. And finally, last week, uh, we explored how from the very beginning, the command to honor the Sabbath by taking one day each week away from work was from the very beginning supposed to be a gift from God to teach his children not only to rest, but also to trust him. And so that brings us to our conversation for today. And with our time together, we get to discuss, wait for it, all six of the remaining 10 commandments. Yes, friends, 
for the first time ever here at Keystone, it is a six for one deal, right? But this also means you need to buckle up because it's going to be a wild ride. We have a lot of ground to cover. But what makes these six commandments so interesting and why I sort of decided to clump them together is that instead of having to do with the children of Israel's relationship to God, like the first four do, those are kind of the vertically oriented commandments, the final six all deal with the children of Israel's relationship to other people. They're like the horizontal relationships. And they also tell us that, in fact, from God's perspective, every single person has value and is to be honored. Every single person has value and needs to be honored. And, and by this, God meant every single person. And I'm telling you, that idea, when first revealed to the children of Israel 3,500 years ago, it articulated a value system that was completely unprecedented in human history. In fact, I'd like to argue that these six commandments are, are so extraordinarily ahead of their time that they actually provide strong evidence that they were of divine origin. Said differently, 3,500 years ago, there's no way humans would have come up with these things on their own. They were a massive leap forward in cultural conscience. I mean, as you'll soon see, these six commands elevated everyone's status, men and women and foreigners, and even slaves, because these commandments were given to the children of Israel without any fine print, right? No asterisk necessary. In other words, because these rules came from God, instead of coming from an earthly ruler or king or prophet or leader or priest, well, nobody was above the law. So like everybody had to follow these rules. And I'm telling you, the world had never seen anything like this before. In fact, it was so unprecedented, and, and this is fascinating, the idea that God would be their king, like for the children of Israel, that God was going to be their leader, that God was going to be their king. This idea made the children of Israel so uncomfortable that a few generations after they received the Ten Commandments, they actually demanded that God give them a human king. And God responded to them by saying he didn't want them to have a human king because a human king would consider himself to be above the law. Plus, he wanted all the other nations to look at Israel and stand in awe of the fact that they'd been able to build cities and armies and collect taxes all without a human king and with only a law that came from their God. But the children of Israel continued to demand a human king, and eventually God gave them a human king, and as predicted, things went south fast. But see, in God's design, it wasn't supposed to be that way. In his design, the children of Israel were to organize their culture around a law that came from him, a law to which everyone would be held equally accountable. Okay, so that's like a basic overview of why I think the last six of the Ten Commandments are so fascinating and kind of can be lumped together. But, but you should know that the specifics of those commands are also really interesting. I mean, right after God gave the children of Israel the commandments that would keep them uh, or that would help them get to know Him, like those vertical commands, He tells them something that's a bit surprising, at least at first. So here's what He says to them in the fifth commandment. He says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And if you're a parent, this is one of your favorite commands to quote to your children, is it not? <laughs> like, obey me or you will not live long. 
in the land. <laughs> Which is, of course, not exactly a one-to-one -one correlation, but it's very convenient. If you're going to pull something out of context, I highly recommend that one. <laughs> anyway, um, if you're like most people, if you're reading this carefully, you, you probably want to call time out. Because like, out of all the things that God could choose to make a priority for his people, like the first 10 things he tells them, he tells them to honor their parents. And moreover, he says that somehow honoring their parents is going to be connected to their ability to thrive in the land that God would one day give them. And so like, what gives? What's going on here? Well, let me tell you what I, what I suspect. I think that in essence, God is telling his people that so as it goes with your family, it goes with your nation. So as it goes with your family, it goes with the nation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's almost like God says to them, listen, if you dishonor your parents especially by refusing to adapt their system of faith, then you'll put your country on a dangerous path. And if necessary, I'll actually take you out of the land that I give you one day in order to remind you of who I am. So God says, honor your parents. Really, I think the faith of your parents, and this will connect to your ability to live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And, and so not surprisingly, God's warning here proves to be prophetic. And after the people of Israel took possession of the land and found themselves in a place of blessing, like the land of milk and honey produced milk and honey, lots of good things, the younger generations looked at their parents' faith and began to find it unappealing and restrictive. And so they essentially said to their mom and dad, I know that that faith system worked for you, but it doesn't really work for me. And so then they began to explore religions and idols of their pagan neighbors. And you can read about this in like first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles in the Old Testament. Um, all that to say, God knew from the very beginning that honoring parents would be the key to passing faith to the next generation. It was that big a deal. And so I think that's why it becomes the fifth commandment. Okay, so now we come to the most famous string of commandments. Um, if you grew up in church, these are the ones that you probably remembered. The first four you kind of probably forgot, but the next ones you, you know, you could probably memorize, um, recite them from memory, but um, they're the ones that honor the other people. And as you soon see, they use very few words, but the words that they use carry immense weight. So I want to look at them briefly um, because they're pretty self-explanatory, but I'll tell you what's going on here. So the sixth commandment reads simply, you shall not murder. And I know what some of you are thinking, crushing this one, right? Yeah, got this one under control next. But here's what I think is going on here. So God says to the people shortly after rescuing them from Egypt, honor other people's bodies. I think that's really what's going on here. Like God is saying to them, listen, you didn't give life to anyone and you shouldn't take life away from anyone. So don't murder, honor other people's bodies. Okay, simple enough. And then moving on, the seventh command goes like this. You shall not commit adultery. In other words, God tells the people, listen, um, you need to honor one another's marriages. You need to honor their bodies, and then you need to honor their marriages. So basically, if you're married, then don't be intimate with someone other than your spouse. And if you're not married, don't be intimate with someone else's spouse. Because like, this is how this works. You need to honor one another's marriages. And, and, and so no fine print, no exceptions. And again, even for the rich and powerful, even for the king, everyone has to honor this command, which comes from God. So that's the seventh commandment. Eighth commandment is similarly clear. It reads this way, you shall not steal. In other words, God tells his people, honor one another's stuff, <laughs> which is actually amazing if you stop to think about it. And I did this week. Um, 
it's like in this law, God essentially affirms the concept of ownership, that we as people can have things that are ultimately from him, but that belong to us. And he goes on to say that nobody, no individual, no group, or no government should be able to take what belongs to someone else. It's against his law. And again, you have to understand, that was so completely revolutionary 3,500 years ago. Nobody had ever said anything like that before and has made it apply to everyone. So don't steal. All right, next up is the ninth commandment, and this one reads like this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. In other words, God tells his people that they are to honor one another's reputation. Said more plainly, God says, listen, don't lie about other people in ways that negatively impact the way those people are perceived in the community. So you need to honor one another's reputation. So to summarize, God says to the children of Israel, these recently rescued slaves, they're sort of wide open and ready to build their society around whatever God says. He says, listen, you need to honor one another's bodies and marriages and stuff and reputations. This is the sort of culture that I want you to create, a culture where you honor and respect everybody. Apparently, honoring people, like all people, is a really big deal to God. And what I find so fascinating, some would say, oh, that's a New Testament thing. I mean, this is, again, this is the Old Testament since 3,500 years ago. God rescues a nation of Israel, wants to make them a lighthouse for the world, a light in darkness. One of the first things he said is you have to understand, you have to honor everybody because everybody is made in my image and everybody is therefore worthy of respect. It's, it's fascinating because that idea is actually still kind of progressive today, right? And yet here it is, 3,500 years ago. Anyway, that brings us to the 10th commandment. Um, and in the 10th commandment, it's very different than the others. And in it, God shifts a bit and makes a rule for the children of Israel that we would actually consider to be unenforceable. And I actually think that's further evidence that these commands came from God because if you're not God, you'd never be able to enforce this rule. And, and here's why. The 10th commandment is God's way of telling his people that they are to be accountable to him for what they think. So it reads this way. God says to the people, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, or his ox or his donkey. And so some guy's like, now that is a nice donkey. Yeah, right. Um, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So don't just steal something from your neighbor. Don't just honor your neighbor's marriage, but don't even covet something that belongs to your neighbor. Which raises an interesting question, like what's, what's going on here with this word covet? Well, I did a little bit of research into the original language and, and the Hebrew word translated covet here is really interesting. It carries a sense of desiring something that someone else has so strongly that it actually inhibits your ability to have a healthy relationship with that person. It's when someone thinks to themselves, I don't like them because their house or car or donkey <laughs> is nicer than mine. Like, I don't like them because of what they have. Or I don't like them because their husband is more attractive than mine, right? Or, or I don't like them because their kid is better at sports than mine. Like it really has nothing to do with them. It's, it's like something that they have that someone else doesn't have but desperately wants. That's, 
That's coveting. And obviously, coveting isn't something that can be observed with the naked eye. It's something that happens on the inside. So as I mentioned, this command, from our perspective, is unenforceable. And yet, here it is, right? At the end of a list of rules that, when broken, are enforceable. It almost begs a question, and I do this all the time when I'm reading the Bible, but the question is just this, like, why? Like, what is God trying to communicate to the nation of Israel here? Beyond just the command, what is he trying to communicate about himself or the way he wants them to be in the world? Well, consider this. I think you can actually learn about, a lot about who someone is by the laws that they give, because the laws that they give tell us what they value. If you want to know what a parent values, look at the rules that they give to their kids or the rules that they don't give to their kids. If you want to know what God values, look at the rules that he gives to his kids. So I think this command can actually tell us something powerful about who God is. This commandment actually, if you think about it, helps us make sense of some of the things that Jesus taught. Now, let me show you an example. Um, hundreds of years after the Ten Commandments were given, like the nation of Israel is in the promised land and Jesus has come. Uh, Jesus is teaching one day and he looks at his disciples, his first followers, and, and he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And a few of you are like, ha ha, the Ten Commandments. Exactly. He's pointing them back to the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said long ago, Moses, yep, you shall not commit adultery. He said, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And if you could have heard what was going on in people's heads in that moment that were listening to Jesus, they would have all gone, uh-oh, right? I mean, especially the guys. The guys would be like, uh-oh, and all the girls would look at their guys, and the guys would be like, uh-oh, 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 right? I mean, that's a really challenging thing to say because Jesus essentially called every man there an adulterer. And they were like, no, no, Jesus, we were following the rules. Like we, we hadn't committed adultery, but this whole thought adultery thing, that's kind of unique. Where is this coming from? But see, Jesus' point was that if they wanted to honor God and honor other people, his followers needed to pay attention what was going on, not just in their lives, not just what they were acting out, but also on the inside. Because apparently, just like God cares about what they do, he cares about what they think about, even if they never put what they think about into action. And I think if they were to raise their hands and say, Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. How could God possibly, how could God possibly judge us for what we think about or, or care about what we think about? I mean, we're, we've got a filter. Like we think it and we don't do it. And that's a, that's a win, right? And Jesus would say, yeah, that's better than doing it. But listen, you've got to understand, God cares about you so much. He cares about what you think about. He wants you to take your thoughts captive. And they say, well, is this a new thing? And Jesus would say, no, it's been here since the very beginning. Think about the 10th commandment. In the 10th commandment, God essentially says to the children of Israel, guard your hearts. And of course, in the ancient world, the heart is the center of being. The heart is the thing from which you live. It's the seat of your emotions. And we're like, no, it's the thing that pumps the blood, right? But you know what I mean? Like the, the, in the ancient world, they thought about that was, that was your emotional center. So God says to his people that he loves, don't covet. Because honestly, if you think about it, Coveting can often be the first step in breaking the other 
commandments. I mean, if I covet what you have enough, then I may be tempted to steal it. And if I covet what you have enough, I, I might be tempted to kill for it. Or perhaps, I mean, you know, I, I might be tempted, if I, if I want what you have enough, I might be tempted to lie about you and, and, and try to ruin your reputation in order to sort of get what you have. I, I'm telling you, this is why the Ten Commandments were and are so amazing. Like, they reveal God's desire to organize a world around a culture of respect and honor. And so he tells his children, basically, you know, to summarize the Ten Commandments, he says this, he goes, kind of, you need to honor me. That's first, right? No other gods before me. I want to be the primary filter for all of your decisions. Not because I want to control you, but because I love you and I want you to thrive. Then you need to honor other people, like all other people. And I know what you're thinking, because that doesn't make sense. You don't live in a world where people honor other people. Like there's insiders and outsiders, and you don't love the outsiders. You don't honor the outsiders. You hate the outsiders. But he's like, I want you to honor them, because they were made in my image. And just like I've created a relationship with you, I want to use you to create a relationship with them. So honor me first and then honor other people. And then this third one, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. You've got to pay attention to what's going on on the inside because so many of the problems that end up coming out often start on the inside. So I want to help transform you from the inside, but just start paying attention to your heart. So honor me, honor other people, guard your hearts. And it's like so simple. And it's so beautiful. And yet it's so powerful. I would argue that it's the sort of thinking that when you live into it, it can actually change the world for the better. And I even think there's a little more than that. I think, I think the simplicity and the beauty of this tells us something about who God is. Because if you think about it, and, and I have because that's kind of what I do, right? <laughs> God didn't primarily give ancient Israel the Ten Commandments and the rest of his laws to make them good. It's not like they were bad and he's like, all right, here's a bunch of rules, do these things so that you can be good. And we actually know that because within the law God gives his children, he tells them what to do when they break the laws that he's given them. So some of the laws are what to do when you break the laws in order to like pay for your sins. In other words, he assumed that his children would break his laws. So God's primary goal in giving the law couldn't have been simply to make them good. Sure, by following the law, you live a better life, absolutely, but that can't be the whole thing. And so you say, well, what if it's not just about being good, what is it about? I would argue that God gave his children the law not simply to make them good, but to keep them free. I mean, think about it. He had just rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and he was going to teach them now how to be a new sort of people in the world. And he wanted them to be free, not just from the Egyptians, but he wanted them to be free from the consequences of sin. Because he knows that sin kills, and sin destroys, and sin erodes, and he loves them and says, listen, because of a relationship that I already have with you, because I love you, like, honor me, honor those around you, elevate their status as they remain in marriage, and guard your hearts because that's how you can remain free in this life. And when you're free, then you can be who I made you 
to be. Now, what's fascinating is um, when you read the Ten Commandments, they're found in Exodus chapter 20. Um, there's a section that almost always gets skipped, but we're not going to because we are hardcore around here, okay? So let me show you the way the passage at Mount Sinai ends because I think it's fascinating. So check out how the people responded when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments. Here's what the author of Exodus tells us. He, he writes, when the people saw the thunder and the lightning, so great light show, and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. And they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die, which is a bit of an exaggeration, but you get the idea, right? God had demonstrated his power and his majesty. He had filled the people with awe and wonder. And so they were basically like, uh, Moses, tell you what, that was cool. You go up in the mountain, you talk to God. Why don't you just tell us what God said? We don't want to hear from God. Too terrifying, too overwhelming. And I love that for one reason. I mean, have you ever had a season in your prayer life where you just cried out to God, God, speak to me, right? That would just bring the clarity, just speak to me, audible voice. That would be so helpful in this situation. I don't know what to do. And I think based on this passage, if you had asked the children of Israel what they thought of that idea, I would say, no, no, no. They would say, don't uh, avoid that request. <laughs> See, we just experienced the visible manifestations of God's power, and we were terrified, like needed to change our undergarments terrified, okay? I don't think they had undergarments back then, which is something to think about over lunch, but right, yeah, right? See, we didn't want to hear God's voice. Moses, you talk to God. Tell us what God says. Now, check out Moses' response, and this is brilliant. Moses looks at the people, and he says this. Do not be afraid, which, by the way, every time someone is afraid by something really holy that shows up in the Bible, angel, miracle, whatever, first line, do not be afraid. God, he says, has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the fear here is interesting because it's the reverent fear. It's a fear of respect. There's a power differential between people and God, and God is up here. So he says, when you're in God's presence, you should be filled with awe and wonder. It's a righteous, redemptive fear, not a destructive fear. So don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear, so you see like the afraid fear, that's the bad fear. The good fear, the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, God isn't trying to establish a healthy fear of himself for his sake. He wanted his people to understand something of his power and might for their sake. Because at the time God's first laws were revealed to his people, they didn't have any history of the consequences of breaking his law as a nation. They hadn't learned what would happen to them when they violated his laws after forgetting that God was their lawgiver. Like they just didn't have any history yet. And so God says to them, look, I want you to obey me not because you know firsthand the sting of the consequences of your choices. I want you to obey me just because of who I am. Your heavenly father who loves you and somehow also created the universe let that be enough. And if you ever wonder or doubt or if you ever tempted to stray off the path that I've designed for you, then you need to remember who I am and let your respect for me motivate you to stay away from sin. Not because I demand that you're good, but because I want you to be free. I love you and I've bought your freedom and I want you to remain in that freedom. 
And so now, but before I let you go, I want to talk briefly about you and me, because we talked all about ancient Israel, right? And, and their relationship with God and the rules that happened in the context of that, their relationship with God. But what about you and me? What about 2,000 years later? What about New Covenant? What about those of us who are in Jesus? And I would argue that whether you realize it or not, the authors of the New Testament repeatedly affirm that much like ancient Israel, God gives followers of Jesus rules to follow in order to keep us free from the consequences of sin as well. Now, and again, not to get us into a relationship with them, because if you're in Jesus, you're already in relationship. You've already been adopted as one of his children. But, but because he is our perfect heavenly father, and as our perfectly heavenly father who loves us, he tells us how to function best in our marriages and at work and how to handle our finances and what to do when we experience a relational breakdown. It's like he wants us to know how to do life best, not for his sake, but for our sake. And just like ancient Israel, he doesn't give us rules to live by in order to make us good. He gives us rules to live by in order to keep us free from the consequences of sin because he loves us and he wants us to thrive. And again, something to think about over lunch. If you grew up in church and this was not the way you were introduced to religious rules, this is something great to talk about. Because when you understand if the heart behind the rules isn't to control, but it's coming from a place of love, I would argue it changes everything. And it tells us something powerful about who God is. All right, with that, I'd love to invite you to stand if you're here in the room. And I'll close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for loving us at our most unlovable. Thank you for grace when we fail. And also thank you for revealing the path of life to us, a path where we learn to honor and respect all people, where we learn to live in love in this life. And I pray um, for all of us as we sort of wrestle down um, what to do with what we've heard that you would fill us with courage as we seek to be your people in the world, a people who live in such a way that demonstrates to everyone around us that you are our king and you are our father. And we are so thankful for you and for your son who you sent to buy us freedom. May we live in that freedom. But for today, we say thank you. We bless you. It's in the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Before you leave, if you've come this morning and you would like to pray with someone, we have some volunteers that'll be under the screen right here. We'd love to meet with you um, and just assist you in any way that we can. But for the rest of you, uh, you are dismissed. We'll see you back next week for part six of Who is God? <laughs>